Philippians chapter 4. This is the 11th message on Philippians. I hope you've enjoyed the journey. We're nearly there. Um, We're going to do verses 1 to 9 in Philippians chapter 4. No, not 1 to 9. We're going to do 1 to to 7. 1 to 7. Yeah, I'm going to... I think there's... There's somebody else in the room who has more expertise on verse 8 than I do, so I'm going to leave it over to her to tackle verse 8 sometime. Let's read from verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. In case I forget to mention it later, a couple of weeks ago in Philippians chapter 3, there was a, a sort of an athletic metaphor of pressing on to win the prize, the high calling. Uh, and here in verse 1, he refers to, to the people as his crown. And that's another metaphor from that athletic world where the crown was not what you see on the queen's head with jewels and all of that. The crown was the, the laurel wreath crown that was that was presented to the winner of the race. And I found out this week... And you maybe already know, but Stefan, the Greek word for crown is Stephanos. And I just thought that was really weird how somebody who runs and gets the crown is, because you know, we've got our resident running freak at the back. Like, yeah, Stephanos is the, the crown that you win when you, when you run the race. So cool. Anyway, um, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. That all looks irrelevant. It's not, believe me. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation with prayer or by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Have you ever sat in an exam and heard the person invigilating the exam say there are five minutes left and you start to get your, your, your sort of, the pen accelerates. You ask for more paper and you determine that in those five minutes, you're going to write down everything you know about everything. And you frantically start shooting out loads and loads of stuff. Um, whenever I'm marking test papers in school, the last page is usually the funny page where, where somebody has run out of time and just a whole random mismatch of of chemical terms come in. Paul, when he gets to the end of his letters, seems to do that a wee bit sometimes. He just shoots off a whole pile of stuff. It's as if there's a timer beside him or his scribe has said to him, listen, mate, I need to go home in five minutes. Can you wrap this thing up? And Paul then just goes nuts and starts shooting out loads of things. He says, rejoice. He says, be gentle. He says, don't be anxious. Pray, give thanks. He just explodes with stuff. He does it in in various letters as well. And I feel sorry for the guy writing it down. You ever been in a lecture or a class or something? You're taking notes. 
this probably happens to some of you on a Sunday, actually, come to think of it. You're taking notes, but the guy who's doing the talking or the girl who's doing the talking is just going way too quick and you can't keep up. I can imagine Paul's scribe just getting very frustrated at the amount of stuff that sometimes came out of this guy. And I feel a bit sorry for the Christians who heard it for the first time in Philippi as well, because they're probably, Epaphroditus has shown up with this letter and he's reading it to them and they're probably saying, slow down, mate. Will you just go back and read that bit again? Because there's so much coming out. So picture the scene here. We are probably in Lydia's house. Um, that's not. We're probably in Lydia's house. Because she was the, the wealthy businesswoman that the church in Philippi started with. Whenever she was down at the river praying with some others. And Paul and his companions showed up and they started to establish a community of faith. So we may well be in Lydia's house. Epaphroditus is there with this letter. Everyone's gathered and they're, they're quite excited. They know Paul loves them. Look at the way he talks about them in verse 1. They know that they are quite special in his eyes and they're really excited about what's going to be in this letter. They know also that they've sent him some money. So they're thinking we've got some brownie points with Paul and he's going to say some good stuff. And he does say a lot of really encouraging things to them. But you look over in the front row and you see Yodia in the front row, a lady called Yodia. And you look over to the opposite side and maybe in the fourth row you've got Syntyche because Yodia and Syntyche don't sit together anymore because they don't get along and they're both there but they're not sitting together and there's some things that that Paul has said so far in the letter and you're sitting there thinking I wonder is he referring to them <laughs> is this a is this a specific case when he talks about unity and being of one mind in the gospel and look into the needs of others ahead of your own needs and do nothing out of selfish ambition. You're maybe sitting listening and thinking, I wonder, is he very subtly addressing this situation, uh, doing it very discreetly? And then suddenly the bomb goes off and their names are just called out. <laughs> Can you imagine what it is like for these two? Can you, you know, I was going to do a mock-up of it this morning, but I thought some of you might be mortified if I just picked you and, and used your names. But these two women are sitting and they hear their names read out in Paul's letter. And he says, I, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. We don't know what the tension was, but Paul names it and names them. Now, don't default especially you men, <laughs> don't you dare default into thinking, there you go, a couple of women bickering in church. That is not what we're talking about. So just get that out of your mind. Stop it. All right. There's more going on here than meets the eye. Let me pull out a couple of bigger issues from, from this little verse. First one, they are named. Named and shamed? No. Paul doesn't do that. You read Paul's letters, and when he refers to people that are opposed to him in the church, 
He never names them. He names those who have abandoned him, like Demas. He names a guy, Alexander, who did him much harm. But whenever there are people in the church who are causing difficulty in the church, he never names them. He doesn't name the guy in 1 Corinthians 5 who is up to all sorts of mischief with a family member. He does not name the guy in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I think it is, who is opposed to him. Mentions it, but doesn't name it. Whenever someone is named in a letter, they are not being named and shamed. We read this and think, ha ha, he's called them out. They're, being, they're not being named and shamed. They are not. To name them is an act of friendship. He is honoring these two women by putting their names in the letter. So forget about our idea of naming and shaming. That's not what he's doing. So they are named and, uh, and they're loved as well. Okay, these, these are the names that you read after verse 1 where he talks about them being his crown, dearly loved. He longs for them. He then mentions these two women. They fall into that category. He loves them. Right? He's not naming them to make them feel horrific. They are women. Okay, Stating the obvious there maybe because it says so in the next verse. Um, in case you're interested, their names. Yodia means success. And syntyche means lucky. And lucky and success are not getting along. They are women. Now, here's the rope. And here's what I want to really land in this verse. They are leaders. They are leaders in the church in Philippi. Verse 3, Paul says of them, he talks about these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. These are women who are in leadership ministry roles in the Philippian church. And Paul is concerned that there is tension between them and he names it and he calls them to address it and deal with it. The fact, the very fact that they are named, the very fact that he draws attention to it so specifically and the way he describes them in the next verse makes it clear that they are involved in ministry. Now, I think the church sometimes historically has dropped the ball on this point. The tendency is to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and this is a message or maybe a series of messages all on their own. But the tendency is to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and say, Paul commands women to be silent, and therefore all women should be silent. But that completely contradicts what Paul says everywhere else, which then makes you realize that what he says in 1 Timothy is specific to that particular church. And in all the other letters, he talks about women praying and prophesying. The church in Lydia's house, Phoebe's household. Women are in leadership and they are in ministry in Paul's churches. And to silence them and hold them back when they have been gifted by the Holy Spirit to minister and to lead is a very foolish thing to do. Paul doesn't take sides. He says, look at even the language, it's, it's intense. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche. He says the same thing to both of them. He pleads with both of them. He does not take sides. He does not say you're right and you're wrong. He's basically saying to them, I'm, I'm begging both of you, deal with this. And what he asks them to do is to be united in mind, to agree. 
not to throw the toys out of the pram, but to sit down, to pray, to have the scriptures opened and to figure out where are we united? And is the thing that we're differing over really that big a deal? Do you remember back in chapter one, we were when Paul prayed for us, prayed for them, and he says that we would discern what is best. And the big driving point of that was that we would know what actually matters and stop squabbling over things that don't matter. So he calls them to unite themselves. And how are they going to do this? They're going to do it in the Lord. They're going to do it in the Lord. And with help, in verse 3, do I have verse 3? I don't, but if you look at verse 3, he asks his companion, his comrade, to help them out. Verse 3, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, comrade, colleague, we don't know who that is, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. There's a good chance that that's Luke. And that Luke spent several years as a leader in the Philippian church. And Paul says to Luke, can you sit down and, and help these two to sort out this issue? But please, can you, can you take away the negativity that you might read into that verse? Can you take away the stereotypes that you might hang on people in that verse? And can you see Paul just begging people that he loves to sit down and to, to become united rather than falling out? In verse 4, he says rejoice. No, he says rejoice always. No, he says it again, rejoice He's really, really emphatic. Now, the word rejoice is a word that for years as a younger Christian, I did not understand. I thought rejoice was how you feel. You know, I feel like rejoicing. I'm going to rejoice because I feel like rejoicing. And that rejoicing was contingent upon feeling a certain way. A better word might be the word celebrate. I like the fact that up at New Horizon, their, their big gathering in the evening is called the evening celebration. They're onto something there. Celebrate. And Paul's readers in Philippi, or his hearers of this letter, as we've talked about as we've gone through, they frequently would have seen people celebrating Caesar. Festivals and street parties in honor of Caesar. And he says to them, you have seen how these people celebrate. You need to now celebrate. You need to exuberantly rejoice and celebrate in the Lord. Now, church, here's the thing for you. And we're all together in this, including me. I think there's a lack of celebration about us recently. A lack of celebration. I think work has taken a very heavy toll on a lot of people. And the last year and the, the extra challenges of the last year has taken a heavy toll on a lot of people. And I think we can tumble in through the door on a Sunday morning or on a Tuesday night with no real intention of celebrating. We're here, we've shown up, we're... we're you know, we're doing the right thing by being here, but we're not walking in with a determination. I am going to celebrate. And I read uh, maybe a month or so ago in my reading plan one morning, I don't know about you, but sometimes you'll just read something and you've read the book before many times and you've never seen it or you've never been hit by it. But I hit on this in Galatians 4 a month or two ago. What 
has happened to all your joy. Now, joy is not happiness. Joy is not contingent on circumstances. Joy is a choice. To celebrate and to rejoice is a choice. And Paul says to the Galatians, and, and the Holy Spirit challenged me, what has happened to all your joy? I don't know if any of you relate. You don't have to nod or wave or anything like that. But I don't know if any of you relate that the celebration just isn't quite where it needs to be. And one of the things that you, can, you could very easily respond to that is, or you might think I'm being harsh or heavy-handed here, is you might say, well, the circumstances that I'm living in don't call for celebration. I'm tired. My job is horrendous. I'm going through whatever trials and traumas and therefore I don't feel like celebrating and you can't force me to celebrate. I don't want to force anyone to celebrate. And Paul says, you know, you could, you could say, Paul says rejoice or celebrate with those who celebrate and mourn with those who mourn. So if somebody's mourning, don't force them to celebrate. And you wouldn't do that. You don't walk into a house of mourning and try to feign celebration. But there's a subtle difference between what Paul is saying in Romans 12 and what he's saying in Philippians 4. In Romans 12, if someone's celebrating, if someone's got a promotion, if someone's just got something that wonderful that's happened, don't be jealous. Rejoice with them. Celebrate. Say, I'm, I'm, so, I'm thrilled that this has worked out for you. This is class. Well done, you. If somebody's sad and they're mourning and going through trials and difficulties, then mourn with them. But the difference is, now look, Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who are rejoicing. But Philippians 4, 4, celebrate, rejoice in the Lord. That's the difference. No matter what circumstances we go through, we might not celebrate those circumstances. And anybody that asks you to celebrate those circumstances is really not very nice. But we can always celebrate in the Lord. Always no matter what the circumstances may be. And that celebration will look completely different for different people, different churches, different cultures. It doesn't mean everybody has to be bouncing around the room. But when we walk in to the gathering of God's people, I would say to you, I want, as, as you walk through that door and the, the, the air curtain, you know that electric heater that puts the air down? I'd love you just to walk, and, and as you walk under that, you just feel something reminding you, you're here to celebrate the Lord. <laughs> You're here to rejoice in him because he is risen from the dead. That has not changed. You are forgiven and I am forgiven. That has not changed. A difficult week, a difficult month does not change the fact that we are forgiven and we can still celebrate that. You are a child of God. And regardless of the traumas and the pressures that you go through, that I go through, that is a truth that can be celebrated and rejoiced in. You're not condemned. You're not condemned. And the devil tries to condemn you. You're not condemned because you're in Christ Jesus. That's worth celebrating. His spirit lives within you. That's worth celebrating. The spirit doesn't leave when you go through hard times. The spirit doesn't leave when you make mistakes and you're repentant of those mistakes. The spirit dwells within you. So in spite of our circumstances, like Habakkuk famously said, 
Though the fig tree does not bud and there's no grapes in the vines, the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'm not going to rejoice in my empty stalls with no cattle because that would be a stupid thing to do. I'm not going to rejoice in, in my olive crop failing. That would be daft to jump around and say, woo my olive crop has failed. All right? No, no, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord because he hasn't failed. His stalls aren't empty. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Remember, Paul is writing from prison. Okay? Not from the penthouse suite in some, you know, skyscraper somewhere. He's writing from prison. We need to get our celebration back. You'll have a chance to do that in a few minutes. He also says the Lord is near. Don't lose the reality that when God's people praise him, Psalm 22 says he's enthroned. He inhabits the praises of his people. I sometimes visualize God's people coming together, the living stones that Peter talks about come together and we praise him and those stones all then arrange themselves into a temple where God dwells. And as we rejoice in the Lord this morning, the Lord is near. He's near. Again, I imagine sometimes as I'm singing, and I know the masks don't make it easy, and I know being seated and all of that doesn't make it easy. Sometimes I visualize Jesus just walking around as we worship, just walking around and putting his hand on people, strengthening them, helping them. The Lord is near when we worship. We are called in verse 5 as Paul just shoots out one thing after another because the invigilator has said the exam's going to be over soon. The scribe wants to go home. Paul shoots out another one. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Are you gentle? Or are you harsh? How do you treat people? How do I treat people? I don't have a big staff working for me, but how do I treat the ones that do work for me? Am I gentle with them? Reasonable? Patient? Paul says, let your gentleness be evident. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say, do not be anxious about anything. As we, This is sort of the final point that I want to linger on for today. Anxiety. Anybody struggle with anxiety? Appears to be on the rise in culture. And the last year has not helped anxiety. I guess concern about outcomes that might never happen. Overly worrying and thinking about catastrophes that are never going to actually materialize, but they start to dominate your thinking. Um, This last year, again, for many of us, work has changed. Some people, you've got to, you know, your, your work hasn't changed that much. You've got to put the mask on, wash your hands and keep your distance. But you can largely do a lot of the stuff you normally did. Some people overnight, they had to change everything and get the same outcome. <laughs> and it's been quite stressful. I found it difficult. I found myself a lot of time in the mornings getting up early to pray. And I've maybe got about an hour set aside 
And I don't know if this ever happens to you, but it happens to me alarmingly regularly. At the end of that hour, I think what just happened. I maybe read a half a chapter and I maybe prayed in a focused way for about five minutes. And then I think, what on earth actually happened the rest of the time? Anxiety can happen. You start to think, what, if, what about all the things I have to do? And what if I don't get them done? Or what if I don't get them done well enough? Or what if that phone call doesn't go well? And gra- your, your mind's spinning. You've got up disciplined. You've hauled your old carcass out of bed. And you've got the coffee made. And you're there. But your mind is just running. I don't know if anybody relates to that. That happens. I'm, I hate that. <laughs> and you think, what was the point in even getting up? <laughs> Might as well have had an extra hour in the nest instead of getting up for that. Anxiety, I find, kills prayer. Because the time that you set aside to focus on God gets invaded by anxiety. Catastrophizing is the big word on things that may never happen. And anxiety not only kills prayer, but I think anxiety kills relationships. And Linda will maybe touch on this when she does the, the next verses in the, in the chapter because it's something that obviously she'll be more expert in talking about than I would. But as I was thinking about this, <clears throat> anxiety kills relationships because when you're anxious about something, there's a certain level of anxiety that's good. And there's a physical response that in moderation is good. But if you're anxious about terrible outcomes that are never going to happen, what happens in your body is that you get tense. Your body starts to get ready to deal with the thing that your mind thinks is going to happen. You get me? Your muscles, oh, pressure comes off. Your muscles tense up. And you're just, you're wound up like a coiled spring because your body is preparing to deal with this thing and you're getting more and more tense and tight. You're maybe not sleeping well. You're waking up and your jaw's sore because you've been grinding your teeth half the night. You're anxious about something that's not going to happen and you're just getting gradually more and more wound up to the point that you're a bit like this lad here. You just want to smash something. You don't care what it is. You just want to wreck all around you. And, and the problem is, and here is the problem, and here's why I say that anxiety kills relationships. You're anxious about something that's not going to happen. Your body is full of tension, all wound up, ready to respond, ready to deal with the awful thing. And then somebody spills the milk and you explode. Or somebody doesn't indicate and you come out with all sorts of things about the person in front of you who didn't indicate. Or somebody breaks something that is replaceable and you just respond in a way that is irrational and unreasonable. Do you understand? Because your body is ready to respond to something. And some poor person that you work with <laughs> gets something wrong. And your response, you just explode out of all your attention. Do you get me? Does this happen? Yeah? Does this have my talking sense? And anxiety will kill relationships. It won't just affect the person who's, who's carrying the anxiety. It will affect those around them who are on the receiving end whenever they, it all just spills over. Have you ever been there? Have you ever responded to something and then afterwards thought to yourself, do you know what, that was just 
heavy-handed. That was unreasonable. That was uncalled for. Is there a chance that you are responding out of a tensed-up anxiety? And that's why you're lashing out at somebody who has done something very minor. Have you ever been on the receiving end of it when somebody is a coiled spring of anxiety and tension and they use you as their punch bag? That is not nice. <laughs> that is not nice. And the next time you see that person, they just talk as nice as can be as if nothing's ever happened. And you're thinking, a week ago you punched my lights out because you were stressed. How do we deal with all of this anxiety? Prayer. (laughs) Standard Christian answer, isn't it? But it's real. I've said that anxiety kills prayer. I'm going to tell you that prayer kills anxiety. Peter writes, Linda mentioned last week about humility and about humbling ourselves. Peter, in in chapter 1 or chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 of his first letter, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. I think in 2021, more than ever, possibly, certainly in our lifetime, maybe in centuries, we need to do that. Christians need to do that and do it well. Our anxiety will invade us like it invades anybody else. That need to pray and to cast those cares onto him in a disciplined, daily, devotional life. And in this prayer that Paul talks about, I want, to, I want you to see two things. Thanksgiving and presenting your requests to God. I see Thanksgiving as like a, it's the, it's the key that gets you in to the presence of God. The Psalm says, well, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. And I want to approach God's presence with thanksgiving. And requests. Prayer is not a way to get what you want. But I want to tell you folks. You can take that idea too far. To the point that you're scared to actually tell God what you want. It is okay to tell God what you want. It is okay. We prayed on Tuesday night. We stayed behind here a few of us. And we talked about work a bit. And and we prayed for a couple of the guys. And it was very simple. We said God this is the outcome that we want. And we're bringing it to you. It might not be the best outcome and you might not answer this prayer, but we're going to bring you what we think is the best outcome and we're going to ask, Lord, that you would do your will, but we're presenting a request to you. Do not neglect bringing your requests to God and trusting him to deal with them. And all of these things, as we finish, all of the things in these verses, I want you to note a repeated theme. In verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. In verse 2, be of the same mind, Yodia and Syntyche, in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. And then verse 5, after this prayer that kills anxiety, prayer of thanksgiving and a prayer of request, the peace of God will then come. And it'll guard your mind in Christ Jesus. The mind has been throughout Philippians, how we think. And it's going to come up again in the next verses. It's all in Christ Jesus. I frequently use joy and thanksgiving as barometers, sort of health check for my soul. Am I joyful? 
Or has my joy gone? Has my celebration in the Lord been worn away by circumstances? And am I thankful? Am I thankful? I can take that to extremes, actually, to the point that as the cup of coffee rises to my mouth and I smell it and I taste it, I say, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Are you a thankful person? Because once those two things, rejoicing, celebration, and thanksgiving, when those two things are fading, that's when we're on dangerous ground. And that's when we maybe want to get somebody alongside us and say, listen, I'm noticing these barometers in my soul are not reading well. It's like when I do a broadband speed check at home, I don't know about the rest of you, but it's a miserable experience in my house watching the the dial on the speed check and it hardly lifts. What way is your, is your dial and joy and thanksgiving? Is it lifting? Is it giving you 70, 80 meg? Or is it hardly rising at all? And if that's the case, you've got an opportunity now to put that right or to start putting that right with some thankful celebration in the Lord. And I would encourage you to pull someone in alongside you and just say, I'm struggling with these things. I need you to help me. I need you to walk with me for a few weeks or a few months to get my joy back and my thanksgiving. Amen. Aaron, come on ahead, but.